This podcast is recorded in Byron Bay on the Bundjalung Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional custodians of this land and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to It Takes Courage to Tell the Truth. This podcast features women from around the world focusing on themes such as birth, business, sustainability, women's health, sex, death, politics, and much, much more. A podcast where we can find our magic, reclaim our witchcraft, and discover our lineage as women. In this chat, I talk with Alice Forrest. Alice is a marine biologist and wildlife guide. She's an activist and also is based here in Byron Bay. She currently lives off-grid in a tiny home that she built with her partner. They're trying to live as sustainably as possible with minimizing their footprint in every step and every day, trying to create positive change for those who are in the world around them. This was recorded in Alice's tiny home, so please bear us as the internet is a little slow and the audio is a little problematic at times, but I hope you enjoy the conversation because it is rich and full of beautiful knowledge. Okay, welcome Alice, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on the show today. I wanted to get you here to have a conversation about your work and your story and your passions. But before we begin, would you just orientate listeners as to how you grew up and how you found yourself in the line of work that you're currently doing? Sure. So it's a pretty roundabout route to how I ended up where I am now, uh, because I grew up in a very small town in northwest New South Wales a very long way from the ocean, so it's kind of shocking that now I've ended up as a marine biologist and just generally ocean-obsessed human. Uh, Not 100% sure how it happened, but I just know when I ended up in the ocean, I just totally fell in love with it. But I started off in this tiny country town called Moree, um, which you may or may not heard of. It's generally famous for cotton farming and also just how completely racist the town was, basically, and possibly still is. I haven't been there in a while. Um, but I grew up in a very still kind of almost segregated town. It was a really kind of strange place. Um, and then when I was about 12, my mum moved out to this region, to the Northern, Northern Rivers region in New South Wales, and I went off to Sydney for boarding school and then uh, spent many years kind of travelling, trying to escape post-boarding school life, and then eventually ended up kind of finding my way again and doing some volunteering um, with animals and realizing that that's where my passion was. And then while studying conservation biology at university, I started scuba diving and then just found this magical other world under the ocean that I totally fell in love with. And then since then, kind of followed more and more down the path of just doing what I can to protect that space that I loved so much, essentially. So I think originally, I came from a place of thinking, being very young and naive and I guess angry about what we were doing to the planet and thinking, I'm going to fix it all and save the planet and (laughs) save it all overnight. And then gradually realizing that that's not really how it works. And then I guess being taught by the ocean to 
slow it down and look at the bigger picture. And now I think my life's a bit more motivated by just connecting with the places I love, connecting with the wildlife and trying to share that connection with other people. Because for me, that's become the most motivating force and the best way to create change, uh, to, to really connect to, to country, to the ocean, to the whales. And then with that connection, it's inevitable that you would want to help those animals in those places. So that's how I ended up where I am now, uh, which is basically living as sustainably as possible. So I live off grid in a little tiny house, all solar and rainwater and fossil fuel free and with my veggie garden and basically just trying to do everything I can in my own life to make a more positive impact. And then also working as a wildlife guide. So I try and educate people about the magic of the ocean to connect them to it and also teach them about easy ways that they can all make a difference and ultimately hope to empower them to make larger changes. So whether that's building up community, uh, whether that's putting pressure on government, whether that's changing how businesses operate, trying to make those larger changes, but starting from a place of individual change and individual connection. So that's kind of where I'm at now. Mm, I love the idea of using storytelling as a way to help shift and um, convince people to move their belief systems into a more night nature based one. And I really do believe that's the way that we are going to move forward as a species is to remember that we once were in this belief system that we needed nature in a reciprocity relationship, you know, so I think what you're doing is incredible work. And I know you spent a lot of time in Antarctica. Will you tell us a little bit about how you ended up there and your adventures on that side of the world? Sure. Um, so firstly, I think I completely agree. Like it really is, storytelling is such an important tool and it's, it's really one of the only ways that people can remember. And I think that's ultimately what needs to happen because this way that we're living now in this completely destructive and irrational way is a new thing and it's not a human thing, it's a new way of living that we've all kind of been taught and become caught up in. And I think it's important to remember that before this, there was so many better ways of living and that's what we need to come back to, um, which obviously is something that you're all about. And I think that's why like the returning festival that you run, for example, is such a, a, a critical thing to happen. And even just the name of it, the returning, that's what it's about. We should just be returning to that way of living. Um, and then Antarctica, um, I ended up there, uh, basically I studied marine biology and largely plastic pollution. So I got involved in plastic pollution research because I thought it was something critical that was not really being addressed. And so for years I was studying plastic pollution and the more science I did um, and publishing papers and getting involved in academia, the more I realized that that wasn't having the outcome that I wanted. So that information was being generated, but it wasn't being used to actually create any change. It was just being published in a journal, read by other scientists. No one ever heard about the research. It was not used for anything. So I became more and more disenchanted with science and academia. And at the same time, started working uh, as a guide, taking people uh, kayaking with dolphins here in Byron, and then later snorkeling with manta rays on the West Coast. and seeing people's reactions convinced me that that was the secret, basically. It wasn't about the science or the data. It was about looking in the eye of a sea turtle, for example, and then having that 
that shift. And so I got more and more into guiding work. And basically while working on the West Coast, I met a few people that worked uh, in the industry that are now working on, ship, on ships, taking people to these places to teach them, essentially. Uh, some of the time it's very much, I don't know, wealthy people that just want to see new places, but there's also people that you can connect to and teach and change their perception of these places, which is why I keep doing it and what's so addictive about it. So through working in this job, I basically work as a guide. So I give lectures on the ships and teach people about plastic pollution, uh, about the whales, about our impact, about climate change. And then at the same time, take them off the ship and we go hiking or drive around, look for whales, that kind of thing. So my role in the ship is a naturalist to teach people about the animals, a lecturer and also a guide. Uh, and since I started working in that industry, kind of taken me all over the place. Uh, firstly, in the Kimberley in the north of Australia, which was an incredible place to get to explore and really taught me so much that I had no idea about, about my own country. Uh, and then further and further afield. And so the last couple of years, I've been working down in Antarctica for the season, which is just the most privileged experience to get to do something like that. Um, I'm endlessly grateful and usually just in shock the whole time that I'm there that I get to see something so vast and wild and unimpacted um, by our actions and by the way we live. So I work down there uh, for usually a few months of the year during our summer. Uh, so summer in Antarctica is still pretty cold. So I have to wear six or seven layers usually when I go outside. But sometimes you get beautiful clear days. Sometimes you get horrendously snowy and freezing cold days. And we leave from uh, Patagonia and the very southern tip of South America in Argentina. It takes us a couple of days sailing to get down to the Antarctic Peninsula, which is, if you picture kind of the round circle of Antarctica on the bottom of the planet, it's got one finger reaching out and that's where we go. And it's a great place to visit because it is, I guess it sticks up a little bit further, so it's slightly warmer. They call it the banana belt of Antarctica because even though it's covered in snow and ice, there are small sections that are rocky. Uh, and that's why you get lots of penguins coming out to nest there. Uh, a lot of those animals need rocks instead of just snow for their eggs. You also get, it's really, really, really productive. So you get a lot of upwelling of nutrients, a lot of food. So around Antarctica is the richest ocean on earth, really, the polar regions, both of them. So you get this cold nutrient rich water, which means huge amounts of krill, uh, which are basically a small crustacean and are probably the most abundant animal on the planet. So there's more krill than literally anything else on Earth, which is pretty amazing. And so then you get all the animals that eat the krill. So you get all the big seals and the whales. So it's an amazing place to visit from a wildlife perspective. But also there's something really touching about going somewhere where you step into this landscape and you aren't at home there. It's not your place. It's a place that belongs to the ice and to the seals and to the penguins. And we can't survive there, basically, without all of our modern help. But basically, this is, it's not a human place. And I think there's so few places left on our whole planet that you can step into and say, this has not been impacted by us. This hasn't been dominated by us. This is just a wild place. And so it's really special to be able to find that. And that's something I've often found in the ocean. Uh, but also, it's amazing to find it on land as well. Um, in saying that, it is worth mentioning that the more you learn about these places, even though it looks completely untouched, it has 
definitely felt the impact of people in many ways. So the emotional feeling of being somewhere like that is incredible and it really just touches your heart basically. But from a scientific perspective, I know that it's also been heavily impacted. So um, Aldo Leopold, who is kind of a famous conservationist, said that for an ecologist or a scientist, you live alone in a world of scars. And I think that describes really Antarctica very well because you get there and you see this beautiful landscape and you partially go, it's the most amazing and wild and vast and untouched place. But you also have this knowledge of how many impacts there are. So even though there are a lot of whales and seals, there's nowhere near as many as there were a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, even though there is a lot of ice, it's melting five times faster than anywhere else on the planet. Um, on the snow, sometimes you get pink patches, which are penguin poo. Sometimes you get patches, which is algae that grows in the snow. And the last year in particular, we had the hottest day on record ever for Antarctica. And there were a lot more pink patches in the snow. And that pink algae looks kind of like blood on the snow. And it's really representative of too much heat in that system causes these algae blooms in the snow. So you can look at that and go, how beautiful this ice and the colors. But if you have that knowledge, then you know, well, actually it's a sign that something is very, very wrong. So it's kind of a, a bit of a balance between this beautiful wilderness, but also the knowledge that even this most remote place on the planet is not far enough away from us and our impact. Uh, the whales there were nearly completely wiped out by whaling, same with the seals. Uh, but once again, you can also find the positivity there because they have recovered. And so ultimately it does still give me hope because we nearly wiped them out, but we learned and we changed our behavior in time. So like right here where we live in the Northern Rivers, there was less than 100 whales here. Uh, in Tonga in the South Pacific, there was less than 15 humpback whales in that population. Uh, humpbacks, even though they're found globally, each population is separate. So there's about 14 around the world. So here in Australia, we have the East Coast and the West Coast. And even though they're both humpback whales, they don't mix, they're separate groups. So our East Coast population was less than 100. The Tongan population, which is separate again, was less than 15. But we learnt and we changed our behaviour. So uh, I choose to focus on that and that optimism and that hope to keep me motivated and keep me going and remind me that we can still change this and it's not too late. I think there's so much hope when you have connection to nature to understand the resilience of it. You know, I'm, I spend a, a lot more time with land-based skills and specifically with the plants. And I notice, you know, when a plant is looking like a, it's on its last legs, how simple it can be to just maybe move it into a different part of the garden or check the soil or give it some water and the ability for that plant to come back. The amount of times I've seen at my friend's houses, their house plants die and we kind of like help them bring it back to life or, you know, at a property at a garden I may be working at. The resilience for life on this planet is outstanding and I think that's something we have to remember when we're looking at the narrative unfold around pollution and fossil fuels is that we do have a chance here to say yes to life like the rest of the world the natural world and that we can actually help aid that and I think that those stories need to be really highlighted because I think it gives us the ability to keep going I think sometimes when we're told you know, you've got 20 years, 30, 40, 50, there's so much despair in that, that it's almost like overwhelming. 
So how do you kind of like find hope in a sea of plastic? Yeah, I totally agree. So I think you make such a good point that if you're coming from that place of despair, it's hard to keep going. I know for me personally, I go through ups and downs and in the days where I'm feeling like I can't do enough or I can't have enough of an impact or there's no hope or we're going to lose animals like polar bears or you see species going extinct or you see there's less than 15 vaquita, the tiniest porpoise in the world, less than 15 left. And you hear those things that it's easy to go, we can't fix this and it's too late. And I think when I come from that place, I become completely apathetic. I can't function. There's no way I'm being a productive or useful person. Um, I'm just yeah, barely getting by. And then I think on the other hand, there's days where yeah, I'll go out snorkeling and I'll free dive and I'll look in the eye of a leopard shark and I'll just have that connection and that peace that only comes from those moments that I find under the water and that will keep me kind of buzzing with motivation for weeks because I'll have that little I don't know it's almost like a glowing in your chest that feeling is like oh there's so much that we have on this planet that is so amazing and I think that ultimately life will go on whether or not we're here which is really one of the most uplifting and inspiring thoughts you could have. Like regardless of whether or not humans exist on this planet, life will go on. It's amazing. Even if we set off nuclear bombs and managed to wipe out everything on land, down at the bottom of the ocean, there's animals down there that have lived in volcanic vents for millions of years and they will continue to live in that way regardless of what we do up here. Um, and hopefully what we humans end up doing will not be that destructive. But no matter what we do, life and animals, nature, ecology will continue. But what we're at now is this turning point where we get to choose, like you say, if we operate as kind of custodians of this system and part of this system, or whether we keep ourselves separate from it and then we're basically wiping ourselves out and we've made that decision. So I think it's important from an emotional perspective to come from a place of connection and hope to keep motivated and functioning but also just for human survival, it comes down to needing to be coming from a place of connection and not putting ourselves separate from life because we are part of that, we're life as well. Um, so for me, staying hopeful is usually about that. It's about re-finding that hope and that connection. So it can be really depressing, particularly studying plastic pollution. I think the more I learned about it, there were times, years, where I was an angry, upset person and it was because I was learning things like there's parts of the ocean in the North Pacific where you have 35 times more microplastics than plankton. So for every scoop of water that you look at, there's 35 times more pieces of trash than the food that is the base of the entire food chain. Um, you learn about plastic inside Arctic sea ice, uh, in Antarctica getting washed around the continent, inside animals at the bottom of the deep ocean, you learn about how we're literally reaching everywhere on Earth. There's microplastic now recorded blowing on shore um, with sea breeze, tiny little pieces of plastic, or even raining down in the mountains. It's literally just getting everywhere. And I think having that knowledge can be so depressing um, and so disempowering and really cause despair and fear. But on the other hand, having that knowledge can be a tool and I think that's the way it has to be used. So it's important to keep an emotional connection, but it's also important to distance yourself from that and not let it consume your life. 
because I think while I, I like to know these things, if I could choose between not having any knowledge and living a, I don't know, a mainstream life where I ate whatever I wanted and did whatever I wanted and consumed everything, then, or having the life I have now with occasionally really depressed days, knowing about the situation, I would choose this life with these possibly very depressing days and depressing knowledge because I'd rather know and I would rather have the ability to do something about it. And I know I can't fix everything, but I can change my own behaviors and just try my best to use my skills to make a difference. So I think that's ultimately how I find hope in the face of this knowledge. It's doing what I can for myself. Um, every time I go shopping or traveling or any things I do that could have an impact on the planet, I look at how that decision could have a positive or negative impact and I try and choose the path that will have less negative impact basically and that makes me feel more empowered and more like I can be part of the solution. And then also I've realized that uh, my skills definitely don't lie in uh, being in an office. I tried that for a while. I've tried many different types of activism, working with not-for-profits, working in lots of different spaces to try and make a difference. And now I know that for me, my skills lie in connecting to other people, connecting to community, connecting other people to wild places. And so that's what I try and use. And hopefully, I think my skills also lie in trying to help other people find those ways to be part of the solution, to find that optimism, to find ways to take action. So that's what I try and channel my energy into now. And for me, the best antidote to despair is taking action. So that's what I try and do. So when I'm feeling down, I try and throw myself into another project, another way of inspiring people, another lecture, another talk, um, doing something in my own life that can make a difference. And then if all else fails, no, that's a bad way to put it. If, <laughs> if I've tried all of those things uh, and I still need some space in my brain, then just getting into nature is always the best possible thing I could do. So getting out on a hike, just going and sitting under a tree somewhere, ideally getting in the ocean, that's always the best, just getting under the water and just reminding myself how much we have that still exists that is so valuable and so wonderful and so awe-inspiring. Um, and we're so lucky where we live that we can access that so easily. I can jump on my bike and be in the ocean in 10 minutes or drive 20 minutes and be in a waterfall or just experience really beautiful, breathtaking nature so close to where I live, which is a deliberate life choice. It's not just luck, but also I'm endlessly grateful for the ability to have those amazing experiences so close to where I live because I think it's really necessary to have that connection to stay optimistic and hopeful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people, you know, they're living in a more urban environment. So they may be like, well, I can't get to a waterfall. It may take me an hour. But um, for me, I find like the individual steps that we're taking in our life definitely contribute to the whole. But what I find sometimes a bit difficult is the kind of legislation or red tape. Do you have any tips on what we can do individually to try and affect policy change or legislation on a government space? Yeah, I think that is a brilliant thing to bring up because I think part of what's wrong with the system is that we have been told that it's our fault. So we've been told that we're using this plastic trash and that's why the ocean is full of plastic or we uh, I don't know, use houses that run on a mainstream electricity grid, which is 
made by burning coal for our houses to run. And so it's our fault that climate change is happening and we need to turn off the lights. And at the end of the day, that is just a really harmful narrative being fed to us by these huge industries that benefit from us continuing to have those behaviours. So at the end of the day, us using plastic containers or going shopping and I know I am so privileged to have this life where I can afford to go to a farmer's market and I have a farmer's market and I can go to a bulk shop and I can make easy changes in my life to try and feel like I make a positive difference. And I know for most people in the world that is 100% not the case. Um, even people that maybe live near a farmer's market but they have kids, a family, a busy life, a low income. Like There's so many barriers for us to live easily in a way that has a lower impact. And yeah, I think that's deliberate by the plastics industry, which invested millions, billions of dollars in convincing us that we need to use all of these products and really taking away our alternatives. So if you look at the plastics industry, for example, because it's such a good one, um, there's literally um, transcripts from plastic meetings by the plastics industry when they were first creating single-use packaging products, talking about how the future of plastic, because plastic's an amazing material, it's strong, it's durable, it's lightweight, and so originally it made things that people would treasure. And then the industry realised that that is not going to make them a lot of money, and so there's these famous quotes from plastic industry meetings saying, the future of plastic is in the trash can. And so the industry realised they could make a lot more money if they got people to throw out their products and buy a new one. And so they started convincing people that that's what they needed to do. They should be consuming and throwing things away. And at the beginning of this time, people used to have plastic cups at the drinks dispenser that they would wash and then put back. And the plastics industry had to come in and say, no, chuck it in the bin. You don't need to keep washing it. Um, there's a famous cover of Time magazine of a whole, like a housewife with her family and they've just finished dinner and she's just throwing all of the plastic cutlery and plates and cups in the air and there's a big bin there full of plastic trash and it's saying, look, like we've freed your life up with the invention of these throwaway products and we were really taught to consume in that way. The reality is it's unhealthy for us as well, because the chemicals in these plastics, it's another whole story. It's unhealthy for the planet, it's unhealthy for children and their children's children, there's plastic being found in pla inside placentas now. Like, I can't overstate how huge this problem is. But if you put the, the guilt, I guess, on the individual, then you're missing a big part of the problem, which is these large industries, um, companies and governments that create this waste and that sell plastic, for example, without having a way of taking that product back. Um, Plastic's not that recyclable. We don't recycle most plastic now in Australia. It's just not good design and it's being passed on to the consumer. So I think for people that want to make a difference, I'm a big fan of individual change because I think it feels good and it's an important thing to do. But ultimately, the pressure here should be on industry and should be on government. So your question about the red tape and how to kind of fight that bigger battle, I think it's a tough one, but I think ultimately that's the battle all of us need to be fighting. And it starts with, I guess you could call it a consciousness shift of realising that there is a problem and also realising that we can be part of the solution and that we have the power to make a difference. Um, so there's a great quote, um, the, the, the biggest or the easiest way that we give up our power is by thinking that we don't have any. And I think that's what these companies, these businesses, governments want us to think, that we don't have any power. And the reality is, 
that we completely do. If you look at history, there's so many amazing movements that uh, the current systems, which have been completely unjust, have been overthrown. Uh, there's a lot of studies of these movements and they show that it doesn't need a large amount of the population to stand up and ask for change. Uh, somewhere between 3 and 12% is the tipping point in most studies. So in most big revolutions and changes all around the world, it's only between 3 and 12% of the population that has to stand up to make a difference. So we are much more powerful than we give ourselves credit for. So in terms of practical actions, it could be, it sounds like a cliche, but it could be as simple as contacting your local government. So whether it's sending a letter, contacting your local council, making sure that they know that they are there to represent your interests and that they know what is important to you because ultimately these people only get there because of our vote. But I think more than that, it's about building stronger and more conscious communities. So it's about connecting to other people and having conversations, basically. It's about building communities that are resilient and that are focused on what is right for those communities and not what we've been told by big business and by government. So in our local area, for example, we have fantastic farmers markets. We have a lot of great local farming initiatives so people can get their food locally. We have a lot of great alternative to plastic, for example. We have a lot of great local energy solutions that are localized too. So those things didn't just spring up because they were going to make money or because the government wanted them to. They sprang up because there were passionate people in the community that worked together to make those things happen. And that's when we really see change. So it's not going to come from the top down. It needs to come from the grassroots. And that starts with everyone finding a way to make a difference. And I think the best way to start is to look at what skills people have that they can use because everyone's different. And I think that was a big lesson for me to learn, wanting to be a scientist particularly, and I thought that's what I needed to be to be able to make the most amount of change. Coming from a bit more of an activist background, I thought if I have that piece of paper, it will be easier for me to make a difference. And in some ways it helps, but I think ultimately what it comes down to is using whatever skills, talents, really amazing attributes that you have to offer and putting those to use. So whether that's through filmmaking or through art or through poetry or singing, whether that's through organization, maybe starting a farmer's market or something in your area or a food co-op, or whether that's through public speaking, whether it's through, I don't know, organizing movie nights, whether it's through maybe you work in advertising and you're good at convincing people, you can start using those skills to convince people of more positive things. But everyone has some sort of skill and something to offer. So it's about identifying that and then identifying what actions you could take that really will have those larger differences. So connecting communities and building that social change. And there's lots of great books about it. There's lots of great podcasts about it. It's just, I think, that first mental shift and then identifying how you can be part of the solution. And that's the biggest things that all of us can do to start that larger scale change. Absolutely. And I, I'm like on a mission in 2021 to make um, farming and gardening sexy again. I am trying right. to um, help inspire many people, but it's mostly kind of the industries around here that are doing the most damage to our um, environment that have big reaches of audiences to start looking at how they can try and um, kind of change the narrative of what we see success as you know if our young children are looking at success as somebody who's 
mastered how to grow a garden all year round rather than somebody who is in five or six films and you know the film industry is obviously not doing anything great for the environment in terms of their um, environmental footprint sorry to say Um, but I did work in there so I have the inside privy to that but I also feel like something really like it's hard sometimes to get inspired to maintain and look after your garden and the great initiatives to do are like starting a small men's and women's like circle group where you rotate the amount of people each week that are working on other people's at home gardens because many hands make light work and you know one hour of gardening with five people you get so much work done you're able to look at your garden and see it flourishing and you're able to rotate and share the workload around and that's something that like how can we get out of more of the pubs clubs and cafes which are just our social places to consume and start kind of being more proactive in our consumption spaces or social spaces totally it just makes so much sense like it makes sense that we should be better at and valuing growing our own food instead of valuing yeah our ability to have a bit more made up money sitting in a bank account somewhere like it's crazy how skewed our priorities have gotten that we value someone who spends their whole life sitting in an office over someone who literally grows the things that keep us alive and so it's yeah it's up to us to take that power back and I have a friend actually who has at the local community garden he has a plot and he does one hour organic veggie power and he does one hour a week and that's it and he does it all by himself and he has so many different veggies growing and his whole thing is inspiring people to do just an hour and to grow food but I think you're right it's much funner doing it as a group as well and then you kind of all hold each other accountable too so I think all of these things are stronger when you do them together so I think that's a great idea I feel like I could definitely use some people helping in my garden great I'm well I haven't started my my circle yet so why don't we do it together and then we can rotate that would be awesome get a bunch of the women and men together That would be great. Right now, my system is more like ignore it for a few weeks until it gets totally out of control and then go harvest like several abnormally huge zucchinis and cucumbers, <laughs> pull out a bunch of weeds and try and start over. But it's pretty good. It gives us a bit of food, but it is a chaotic garden. Yeah. And sometimes I find it's a bit, you know, for first time gardeners as well, it can be um, a novelty at first, but really the maintenance is what people end up like losing interest in. And I'm working yeah. in a community garden in Byron and also working on my mum's end and trying to maintain a garden here. And across all of those places, I've just noticed the ones that are thriving are the ones that have more human connection. And I really don't think it's about the actual man or woman power on the land. I think it really is that plants are living beings who react really well to interaction from humans. And so we need to remember that too when we're like looking at building our gardens is like this garden is is a living, breathing thing that is um, capable of, you know, they um, plants are sentient beings, you know, they're, they're capable of feeling. So when you love your plants, they love you back. And that may sound incredibly woo-woo, but that's my reality and lived experiences. I'm sure that you've probably experienced like the similar kind of magic in the seas. Can you talk a little bit about like yeah, your please. first times experiencing the fullness of the sea and like what it felt like I like what is it like to really go into those depths oh it's so magical um I've definitely experienced that with my plants so I've noticed that this year because normally I'm 
away a lot and I'm also I find it hard to be grounded because I'm often so frantically stressed about trying to save the world but also just doing so much stuff and this year it's the first time I've grounded and put in a proper veggie garden and spent time at home and I've noticed that even with minimal effort just having the time yeah and the love to put in everything's thriving and it's amazing yeah it's not so much the actual physical time or physical effort it's more about just that presence and that grounding it's amazing how much difference it makes um, and then the ocean oh uh, the first time I ever went scuba diving I remember I just couldn't stop laughing because I was just under the water looking around and just was so overwhelmed by it all I was almost hysterical just looking around it even just the fish and it feels like you're flying when you're under the water because you're totally weightless and just that whole new experience completely blew my mind and then since then it's just been this deeper and deeper figuratively and metaphorically experience where I just keep learning more and it shows me how much I don't know but also keeps making me more and more astounded at just how much exists out there we know more about the moon and space than we do about the deep sea this it's such a mystery which I find so magical because there's always more to learn and more to experience and I think that being in the ocean teaches you so much as well. I think it's, it's almost in your DNA for me to go back in the ocean. There's this great kind of a story, I guess, about how, well, a true story, but we, we came from the ocean, as we all know, and then we carry that salt water within us. So when we cry, it's the same salinity as the ocean, and we have a bit of that salt water inside us. So I think almost at a cellular level, our body feels good when we get into the ocean. And I think a lot of people would have experienced that, just diving into the sea and feeling that calmness. Uh, as a free diver, there's a lot of great research into the mammalian dive reflex, which is something um, that a lot of different mammals have. Obviously, we are closely related to things like whales and dolphins uh, that are mammals just like us. And we share a lot of attributes with them. So as soon as our face goes into the water and our cold, the cold water touches, particularly around our eyes, our heart rate starts to slow down. Uh, there's a lot of studies showing that people heal faster if they can even just see the ocean or see even a body of water. Uh, there's studies showing that they heal faster. So there's something deeply innate about the ocean and our connection to it, uh, a lot of which we still don't even understand. And then for me, what makes it even more special is the wildlife and the animals that live in there because it's endlessly fascinating and there's so many different and unique animals to connect to. Uh, one incredible experience that stands out for me was several years ago I went to Tonga with a friend of mine and she took me out to see the whales there. And so the mums and the calves hang out around the Tongan Islands from about May to November. So similar to the humpbacks migrating past our coast. So here in the east of Australia, they're heading up to the Great Barrier Reef. Um, in Tonga, they're going up to the Tongan Islands to carve. And so they spend months there. And so we went out there and got in the water with a mum and calf. And we were just watching them for a while. The mum was kind of resting. The calf was resting under her chin, down at about probably 15 meters, maybe 20. The water there is extremely clear, extremely warm. They were just resting and we were just floating on the surface and watching. And the calf kind of peering up at us from underneath her mum and then slowly got more and more curious, coming up a little bit closer and then going back to her mum and then closer. And you could see the mum kind of just keeping an eye on us and still just resting down the bottom. And eventually the calf got just too curious and had to come right up to us. 
and she came up to the surface and kind of swam past me and I dove down just like a meter maybe under the water and I was just looking in her eye and we had this moment where I don't know if you've ever had those moments in nature where you just it's like you snap into this zone where time just doesn't exist anymore and it felt like an eternity just floating under the water with this calf and just looking at each other and seeing this incredibly sentient and intelligent and wise animal looking back and then we kind of just basically rolled around under the water like the calf rolled over on her back and I rolled over on my back and we were just still looking at each other and kind of playing and it was probably I don't know 20 or 30 seconds maybe but it felt like hours years lifetimes just floating with this beautiful calf and then I took a breath and then went down to its mum again and hung out for a lot longer but that was that moment where I came up from that encounter and my uh, snorkel mask was all foggy because I started crying underwater and it fogged up my mask and I remember coming up and going that is that single encounter enough to motivate me to want to protect the ocean for the rest of my life uh, and prior to that I'd seen some horrible things around the ocean I'd been to Japan to the cove where they slaughter the dolphins mm. I'd seen horrendous fishing practices in Sri Lanka where they actually fish for dolphins and use them as bait on the long lines for the shark fishing industry to sell shark fin to Singapore and dynamite fishing on the reef there and all these horrible things and they'd all motivated me in a different way but having this one encounter with that baby whale I just went I could spend the rest of my life trying to protect the ocean just to make it safer for this one baby whale and it just it really touched me so I think that's where my life definitely shifted onto more of this path because of that one encounter and then since then it's just been this ongoing experience of learning more and I find that every single time I go in the water I inevitably find a piece that I don't find anywhere else even though it's noisy there's so much going on under there during the winter the whales are always singing but all the time there's fish crunching um, the sand moving the wave motion there's always sounds but there's something deeply peaceful about being under the sea there's something about that color that deep blue that seems to just tap straight into my brain and there's something about every time I go out I find something different so whether it's I don't know go out and spot a little octopus changing colors and moving along the rocks or the other day we went out and there was a whole group of eagle rays, maybe six of them kind of in a circle. And I dove down and was just kind of hanging on the rock and then they were kind of all around and it felt just for a moment like I was in their, in their group and in their circle. And it's just those tiny moments where I just feel so deeply connected that keeps me going back for more and more every time. That experience that you just said reminded me of, of the first thing that came to mind was the deep, kinship and relationship that humans have had with other animals since the beginning of time and how somehow in this modern industrialized society we've hierarched ourselves over the top of other species rather than like you said mm -hmm. seeing eye to eye looking deeply and sharing this moment of connection and people are always inquiring or oh, how can I connect deeply with the land but you just summed it up so simply and beautifully it's it's just being there you know being in the environment and being willing and um, courageous enough to sit with other species without this embedded kind of I think it's um, fear that isn't really ours you know it's been given to us in order to prevent us to have that connection but it's so powerful the kinship relationships we can have with our more than human beings that also occupy this lot earth with us definitely yeah and I don't think that has to mean everyone goes and gets in the water with the whale I think you can find it anywhere like I've noticed 
it started with the ocean and me becoming obsessed with kind of identifying different fish species and things like that. But in the last couple of years, I've become really into learning more about the birds and the bird language. And that's something literally anywhere there are birds and you can get to know your local birds. And now I feel like I know a lot of the species that live around me and I start to recognize their behaviors and the different sounds they make. Um, if they see me and I'm bothering them, or maybe there's a snake bothering them, or maybe they're greeting each other, or it's just the dawn chorus, or there's so many different sounds that they make. And it's so incredible to sort of be privy to that. And yeah, to find, I was gonna say that connection again, because that's what it is, but to find that connection to these animals and realize that they're not this separate thing, or they're not just part of the background noise. They're these amazing living beings that you're sharing this space with and sharing this environment with and interacting with in a different way. So it's really cool to start to understand them better. And that's something anyone could literally do anywhere. There's always life around, even plants. I love gardening. Other than that, I find it really hard to get super excited about plants. I'm terrible at identifying different plants. <laughs> I have friends who can tell me all the different eucalypt species and things, and I find it really hard to keep track of. Tell you all the whale species, but probably none of the eucalypt species. But for some people, it's plants and having the connection to those and learning about them and their life cycles. Because for me, the learning is so intricately part of getting to know those animals or those plants and it doesn't necessarily have to be getting an id book it can just be sitting and observing that's probably the best way to do it that's how it's always been done um and it doesn't have to be going and studying it it's just a matter of yeah spending that time and making those connections with those animals those plants those places and you don't just learn oh this bird comes here every day you kind of start to get a deeper understanding of the earth and our role in it and how we all just exist here and i think it's the best lesson we can all learn I think you make a good point too, Alice. It's not about trying to protect the earth and the mountains and the beaches. And it's actually about trying to find that one part of nature that makes you sing. And even if that is just mm. having houseplants and that you're maintaining your houseplants well enough that they're providing good air for you in your house, it could be, you know, for example, you are a custodian of the sea. For me, I'm more of the land. But once we start to work within these spaces of protection, we realize how many people are out there protecting the other things and and we spoke about this once together you know um you told me about that exercise that you did where um a lot of activists had to pick their top three things that they wanted to fight for and um the first one they put in a circle was in the direct bulls like middle of the circle and then it kind of went out like that and you walked around the room i mean you're probably going to be able to explain this a lot better than me but you walked around the room and the ultimate thing from that exercise was to show like what may, may be your third priority is someone else's first and that's remembering our collective that we have a bunch of people out here on the earth wanting to protect all different aspects of it and that it can be overwhelming when you look at the pollution in the seas the deforestation of the trees but we can just stick to certain even regions and just make that our passion to protect yeah, exactly. That's totally it. And I think it's such a great example because I love that that image of having your three circles going further and further out and having your main priority and then things you care slightly less about, but still a lot. And then the things, but having all those things you care about, but you can't necessarily put energy into every single thing. There's just not enough time. And if you're putting an effort into all of them, then you're probably putting less effort into the thing that you care most about as well. So I think it's important to care about and understand 
that there are a lot of issues facing the planet, but I think it's also as important to understand that there are amazing people doing things all around the world. And often they're not on Instagram and you don't hear about them, but that doesn't make what they're doing any less valuable or any less impactful. So that's something else I think that's definitely worth keeping in mind to stay optimistic and hopeful, remembering that there are people around the world that are remembering how to live in a functioning way with this planet and that all that knowledge already exists. We're just refinding it all um, and everyone's doing that in different ways and then using that knowledge in different ways but ultimately it's all for the same purpose which is why I think it's also important to keep in mind that all of these movements have equal value so I think it's not about saying like for me obviously the ocean is very important but I don't, don't think I would go and tell someone well you all need to care about the ocean the most because it's the most important thing I think it's about saying this is what's important to me what's important to you and how can we help each other out uh, because at the end of the day whether it's for social justice or human rights or for the dolphins or for the trees whatever it is the orangutans everyone has their thing that lights their fire and that's what they're going to put the most energy into working to protect so that's what they should be going for and together we're all pushing for the same thing for a planet that is livable for us into the future and a planet that conserves as much of this amazing beauty that already exists as possible. Mm, absolutely. I um, I want to talk about 2020 briefly because, you know, I think for me before 2020, we saw a big surge in what I believe was like a mainstream awakening to plastic pollution and also waste-free living. And it felt like it was talking talked about by many people uh you know you walk into the city in the cbd of sydney and look around and there are millions of people with keep cups and that was so uplifting to me but then obviously we faced last year with the pandemic um the i am the not the idea but the fact that the virus is um able to be spread through surfaces and on certain kinds of things. And then we saw this big surge and return to single-use plastic, plastic, mostly masks and also um, takeaway cups for coffee, which for me felt like the most prominent that I was seeing in places. I guess my question is like, how do we continue to live in this world where things like pandemics may be continuing to occur and also stay within our integrity to continue to show up for the planet? Yeah, I think that's a great question because I think it was just really sad last year to see, especially the masks and the beach cleans everywhere floating around in the ocean. Yeah, the coffee cups because it had been such a long battle to get to a point where most people had keep cups. I remember 10 years ago going into cafes in Manly in Sydney where I was living at the time and cafes refusing to use my keep cups. Uh, Many of them for years, so it took a really long time that there was enough public pressure that they eventually all said, oh, yeah, okay, it does make sense. Um, and now it feels like we've taken such a big step backwards. But ultimately, I think that what it comes down to is it's not about an individual coffee cup or a face mask, because I think health is also an important factor and a right that everyone has. Um, but I think that that's when it's about looking at the bigger picture. So for example, the way that most of humanity is currently living is setting us up for a planet that is completely unhealthy for humans to exist on. Um, and the issues with things like climate change are really ultimately a human health issue because the planet will survive with or without us, but 
if we create an atmosphere um, in that is unhealthy for us to live in, where the ocean level is rising, there's not enough fresh water on a lot of places, where coasts are flooding, um, where we've where kind of wiping out a lot of the areas that we can easily grow food. Um, we're causing a lot of drought in different places. We're causing these huge fires and smoke. There's a lot of human health issues linked to these bigger issues. And so I think that's what it's about. So ultimately, it's not about beating yourself up every time you buy something and it has plastic packaging or you're somewhere and you desperately need a coffee and they only have takeaway cups. It's not about beating yourself up in those situations. It's about doing the best that you can do, but also keeping an eye on that bigger picture and the bigger change. Um, not feeling the guilt that these companies are trying to make us feel, but taking that and going, okay, right now I'm using this single-use coffee cup or whatever it is, but what can I do to try and make sure this doesn't happen into the future? So whether it is legislation change, whether it is talking to the people at that cafe, whether it's setting up, I don't know, different systems, or whether it's just going, all right, right now at this current point in time, this is the only way that we can operate, wearing a face mask, for example. I can get a reusable face mask, but I can also look at other things that I can put my energy into right now to keep that forward momentum, um, to keep that shift happening. Because this is bigger than just a coffee cup. This is basically the whole of humanity and how we live changing. Um, and this is moving away from a society that consumes mindlessly and moving towards a society that lives cooperatively with everything else on our planet. So yeah, it's bigger, it's a much bigger picture. So that's what makes me hopeful, but also it's what I think about when I see these sad things, like the rise in coffee cups. I think, okay, well, this is a blip, but we can still keep moving forward and keep pushing for that whole planet shift and that whole consciousness shift, because that's ultimately what it's about, changing our whole view of living on this planet and not just individual choices like a coffee cup absolutely and i think also it's understanding that i think some people say like oh well i'm going to miss out on this or i won't have access to this but i think a big picture is that we're going to gain so much more and including a rewarding life and one that i've experienced in my own journey back to my connection to the land and specifically my connection to culture is that I am a whole new person mentally in terms of the way that I walk through the world and I very rarely have days of um, you know mental health problems because I think I'm so actively involved in being with the environment that there's something that nature gives you it's like the best drugs in the world you know oxytocin serotonin and all those juicy good things that most people find when they are um, on MD at a party, <laughs> you can just get planting trees or going for a walk. So, mm -hmm. you know, if that isn't more inspiration to help also kick consumerism to the curb, because drugs are bad for your body and you have to pay for them, nature's right there and, you know, pretty free for us to access if we have the ability to get to there and are willing totally. to. And there's so many studies showing things like nature deficit disorder, um, particularly in kids that aren't outside a lot and there's studies showing that they have higher rates of depression and anxiety and behavioral disorders because they don't have that nature connection so for whatever reason they need that outside time um, to function well as a human being and then there's also studies showing that having more stuff particularly has absolutely no link to happiness that happiness comes from the strength of your connections basically uh, to community 
to nature. So the connections is what it's all about. And we've forgotten that for a while, but getting back on track with that is the best thing anyone can do. Uh, well, okay. So the podcast is called It Takes Courage to Tell the Truth. And it is about exposing the truths. But specifically, I wanted to ask you, what's the biggest truth that you've found in your embodied experience as a human in this lifetime? Oh, that's a great question. I think probably the biggest truth that I've found is to be able to see through all of the lies that we're fed by society, advertising, mainstream living about what I should be doing. And that ultimately the biggest truth for me is that we are inextricably just a part of nature. We're a part of this planet. And that ultimately then that leads to a choice, whether we continue to act as we are separate from it or whether we step back into a role that's always existed before where we're custodians for it and we help with things that we can help with but we also just step back and let the planet do its thing as well absolutely thank you so much Alice it's been so great to talk to you and I feel like you have inspired me to get off this phone call and try and figure out how I can learn to free dive <laughs> yes do it. I have. I know a great girl who teaches. <laughs> oh, great. Maybe you can send me the information because we just recently got snorkels and we've been utilizing them, but I feel like there's a whole new world of um, deep sea diving that I'd like to discover. There really is. And it's also an amazing world of almost meditation. Like the whole thing I love with freediving is being under the water, but also it's essentially just underwater meditation. The whole thing is just calming yourself down and calming your body down taking control of your mind when it says you need to breathe and just going, no, I'm good. And just deeply embodying this sense of calm. And then that's how you spend time under the water. It's great. It's not like a physical or a pushing or a fighting to get down there. It's a relaxing and surrendering to it that I love. So you should definitely learn. I'll send you the details. Thank you. Thank you for spending time with us and um, sharing all your wisdom. And thank you so much for walking through the world the way you do and sharing your voice. I really appreciate you. And I'm so happy we live in a community together. And um, thank you. Right back at you. Thanks for everything you do. It's endlessly inspiring. Um, and you've totally inspired me to go put more time into my garden. <laughs> Among many other things. But that's the most immediate one.